Hello everybody, Andrew Gamison here with the Speaking for Him podcast. I'm so grateful that you're taking the time to listen today and I hope that you will be blessed. If you've been listening uh, over the last several weeks, you know that we are working our way through the Pilgrim's Progress by John Bunyan. Uh, it's been my privilege to bring you this special multi-voice reading of this wonderful book and I hope that you have been blessed by it and that you will share with others the blessing that you have received by letting them know where they can listen. And I really want as many people as possible to hear this wonderful story because it really does direct us back to God and what it means to follow him wholeheartedly. I think especially this episode, as we see Christian and Faithful going into the town of Vanity and dealing with the issues related to Vanity Fair. And then there is a really powerful sacrifice at the end of this episode. And I won't say any more, but just stay tuned for that. We'll get into our Pilgrim's Progress reading in just a few moments. But first I wanted to say a few words about Resurrection Sunday, which we just passed. Without the resurrection, speaking for him would not exist. Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 that if Christ be not risen, we are of all men most miserable. But then he said, now is Christ risen. There are a lot of people following a lot of different leaders in religion today. Most of the leaders of the major religions are dead. The only exception to this rule is our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul said he, he died according to the scriptures, was buried according to the scriptures, and rose again according to the scriptures. And it's because of that that we have hope for the future, even in these crazy times in which we live. I don't know if you realize this, but we just passed the one-year mark of my doing the podcast here at home, and what a crazy journey that has been. I never thought I would get to a place where doing the podcast from my home would be something that I'd be comfortable with, let alone looking forward to it as I do every week. And so the Lord has been so good, and isn't it wonderful to know that Jesus said, in this world you will have trouble, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. That is the privilege that we have because of the resurrection of Jesus. Because we serve a promise-keeping God. And if he kept the promise of the resurrection for us, then we know that when he said, I go to prepare a place for you, and I will come again to receive you, that we can trust that promise as well. So I just wanted to share with you um, some verses from Luke First of all, starting at the end of Luke 23, and then maybe a few to begin Luke 24, uh, just to center our thoughts once again on the wonder of the resurrection. Luke 23, verse 50 says, And behold, there was a man named Joseph, a counselor, and he was a good man and a just. This same had not consented to the counsel and deed of them. He was of Arimathea, a city of the Jews, who also himself waited for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and begged the body of Jesus, and he took it down and wrapped it in linen and laid it in a sepulcher that was hewn in stone, 
wherein never a man before was laid. And that day was the preparation, and the Sabbath drew on. And the women also which came with him from Galilee followed after, and behold, the sepulcher and how his body was laid, and they returned and prepared spices and ointments and rested on the Sabbath day according to the commandment. Joseph was a rich man, a man of power and influence, and he realized who Jesus was. He didn't consent to Jesus' death. Makes it very clear about that in the text. And perhaps he could have been bolder for Jesus in life, but now that Jesus has has passed away, he wants to do right by Jesus. So he takes him and he buries him in his tomb where no one was ever laid. And I like the details that are here because it goes on to say that the women knew the tomb where Jesus was laid. They watched him be laid in the tomb. Because some people may be persuaded to say, well, perhaps it wasn't that tomb. Perhaps it wasn't that tomb. Perhaps it was just another tomb that they got misdirected to. But Luke is very fastidious on the details. And he says, indeed, they were at the right tomb. And so we continue reading in Luke chapter 24. Luke 24 verse 1 says, Now upon the first day of the week, very early in the morning, they came unto the sepulcher, bringing spices which they had prepared, and certain others with them. And they found the stone rolled away from the sepulcher, and they entered in and found not the body of the Lord Jesus. And it came to pass, as they were much perplexed thereabout, behold, two men stood by them in shining garments. And as they were afraid and bowed down their faces to the earth, they said unto them, Why seek ye the living among the dead? He is not here, but is risen. Remember how he spake unto you when he was yet in Galilee, saying, The Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men, and be crucified, and the third day rise again. And they remembered his words. I think that's so powerful because Jesus told his followers three times, I'm going to uh, be betrayed into the hands of sinful men. They're going to try me. They're going to convict me. They're going to put me on a cross. I'm going to die, and then I'm going to rise again the third day. But they failed to understand the significance of that. But then as they, as the women hear from the angels, they remember his words. What a powerful reminder to us that if we want hope in this life, we should remember the words of our Lord Jesus. All right, well, it is now a great privilege to once again bring you to the world of Pilgrim's Progress through Speaking for Him Readers Theater. I want to thank the following people for their voice talents on this episode. Once again, John Bunyan is portrayed by Craig Apel. Faithful is portrayed by Matthew Gomison. Talkative is portrayed by Timothy Van Bruggen. Christian is portrayed by Alex Jacobson. Evangelist is John Wilson. And the additional voice talents of Allison Brito, Samuel Wilson, Adam Knobloch, David Delrymple, 
Andrew Gamison, Richard Meninga, and Melissa Pierbolt Heldman. And then finally, yet another shout out to my wonderful editor, Caleb Thiessen. So thankful for each of these people. So now, let's rejoin Christian on his journey to the Celestial City. Moreover, I saw in my dream that as they went on, faithful as he chanced to look on one side, saw a man whose name is Talkative, walking at a distance besides them, for in this place there was room enough for them all to walk. He was a tall man, and something more comely at a distance than at hand. To this man, Faithful addressed himself in this manner. Friend, whither away? Are you going to the heavenly country? I am going to the same place. That is well. Then I hope we may have your good company. With a very good will will I be your companion. Come on, then, and let us go together, and let us spend our time in discoursing of things that are profitable. To talk of things that are good, to me, is very acceptable, with you or with any other, and I am glad that I have met with those that incline to so good a work. For, to speak the truth, there are but few that care thus to spend their time, as they are in their travels but choose much rather to be speaking of things to no profit, for this hath been a trouble to me. That is indeed a thing to be lamented. For what things so worthy of the use of the tongue and mouth of men on earth as are the things of the God of heaven? I like you wonderful well, for your sayings are full of conviction, and I will add what thing is so pleasant and what so profitable as to talk of the things of God. What thing so pleasant, that is, if a man hath any delight in things that are wonderful? For instance, if a man doth delight to talk of the history or the mystery of things, or if a man doth love to talk of miracles, wonders, or signs, where shall he find things recorded so delightful and so sweetly penned as in the Holy Scripture? That is true. But to be profited by such things in our talk should be that which we design. That is it that I said, for to talk of such things is most profitable, for by so doing a man may get knowledge of many things, as of the vanity of earthly things and the benefit of things above. Thus, in general, but more particularly by this, a man may learn the necessity of the new birth, the insufficiency of our works, the need of Christ's righteousness, etc. Besides, by this a man may learn by talk what it is to repent, to believe, to pray, to suffer, or the like. By this also a man may learn what are the great promises and consolations of the gospel to his own comfort. Further, by this a man may learn to refute false opinions, to vindicate the truth, and also to instruct the ignorant. All this is true, and glad I am to hear these things from you. Alas, The want of this is the cause why so few understand the need of faith and the necessity of a work of grace in their soul in order to eternal life, but ignorantly live in the works of the law by which a man can by no means obtain the kingdom of heaven. But by your leave, heavenly knowledge of these is a gift of God. No man attaineth to them by human industry or only by the talk of them. All this I know very well, for a man can receive nothing except it be given him from heaven. All is of grace, 
not of works. I could give you a hundred scriptures for the confirmation of this. Well then, what is that one thing that we shall at this time found our discourse upon? What you will. I will talk of things heavenly or things earthly, things moral or things evangelical, things sacred or things profane, things past or things to come, things foreign or things at home, things more essential or things circumstantial, provided that all be done to our profit. Now did Faithful begin to wonder, and stepping to Christian, for he walked all this while by himself, he said to him, but softly, What a brave companion have we got! Surely this man will make a very excellent pilgrim. At this Christian modestly smiled and said, This man with whom you are so taken will beguile with that tongue of his of them that know him not. Do you know him then? Know him? Yes, better than he knows himself. Pray, what is he? His name is Talkative. He dwelleth in our town. I wonder that you should be a stranger to him, only I consider that our town is large. Whose son is he? And whereabout does he dwell? He is the son of one Saywell. He dwelt in Pratting Road, and he is known of all that are acquainted with him by the name of Talkative in Pratting Row. And notwithstanding his fine tongue, he is but a sorry fellow. Well, he seems to be a very pretty man. That is, to them who have not thorough acquaintance with him, for he is best abroad near home. He is ugly enough. Your saying that he is a pretty man brings to mind what I have observed in the work of a painter whose pictures show best at a distance, but very near, more unpleasing. But I am ready to think you do but jest, because you smile. God forbid that I should jest, although I smiled in that matter, or that I should accuse any falsely. I will give you a further discovery of him. This man is for any company and for any talk. As he talketh now with you, so he will talk when he is on the ale bench, and the more drink he hath in his crown, the more of these things he hath in his mouth. Religion hath no place in his heart, or house, or conversation. All he hath lieth in his tongue, and his religion is to make a noise therewith. Say you so. Then am I in this man greatly deceived? Deceived? You may be sure of it. Remember the proverb, they say and do not. But the kingdom of God is not in the word, but in power. He talketh of prayer, of repentance, of faith, and of the new birth, but he knows but only to talk of them. I have been in his family, and have observed him both at home and abroad, and I know what I say of him is the truth. His house is as empty of religion as the white of an egg is of savor. There is there neither prayer nor sign of repentance for sin. Yea, the brute in his kind serves God far better than he. He is the very stain, reproach, the shame of religion to all that know him. It can hardly have a good word in all that end of town where he dwells through him. Thus say the common people that know him, a saint abroad and a devil at home. His poor family finds it so, as he is such a churl, such a railer at, and so unreasonable with his servants that they neither know how to do for or to speak to him. Men that have any dealings with him say it is better to deal with a Turk than with him, for fairer dealing they shall have at their hands. This talkative, if it be possible, will go beyond them, defraud, beguile, and overreach them. 
Besides, he brings up his sons to follow his steps, and if he findeth in any of them a foolish timorousness, for so he calls the first appearance of a tender conscience, he calls them fools and blockheads, and by no means will employ them in much or speak to their commendations before others. For my part, I am of opinion that he has, by his wicked life, caused many to stumble and fall, and will be, if God prevent not, the ruin of many more. Well, my brother, I am bound to believe you, not only because you say you know him, but also because, like a Christian, you make your reports of men. For I cannot think that you speak these things of ill will, but because it is even so as you say. Had I known him no more than you, I might perhaps have thought of him as at the first you did. Yea, had he received this report at their hands only that are enemies to religion, I should have thought it had been slander, a lot that often falls from bad men's mouth upon good men's names and professions, but all these things, yea, and a great many more as bad of my own knowledge can prove him guilty of. Besides, good men are ashamed of him. They can neither call him brother nor friend. The very naming of him among them makes them blush if they know him. Well, I see that saying and doing are two things, and hereafter I shall better observe this distinction. They are two things indeed, and are as diverse as are the soul and the body. For as the body without the soul is but a dead carcass, so saying, if it be alone, is but a dead carcass also. The soul of religion is the practical part. Pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this, to visit the fatherless and the widows in their affliction, and to keep himself unspotted from the world. This talkative is not aware of. He thinks that hearing and saying will make him a good Christian, and thus he deceiveth his own soul. Hearing is but as the sowing of the seed. Talking is not sufficient to prove that fruit is indeed in the heart and life. Let us assure ourselves that at the day of doom, men shall be judged according to their fruits. It will not be said then, do you believe, but were you doers or talkers only? And accordingly shall they be judged. The end of the world is compared to our harvest, and you know men at harvest regard nothing but fruit. Not that anything can be accepted that is not of faith, but I speak this to show you how insignificant the profession of talkative will be at that day. This brings to my mind that of Moses, by which he described the beast that is clean. He is such a one that parteth the hoof and cheweth the cud. Not that parteth the hoof only, or that cheweth the cud only. The hare cheweth the cud, but yet is unclean, because he parteth not the hoof. And this truly resembleth talkative. He cheweth the cud, he seeketh knowledge, he cheweth upon the word, but he divideth not the hoof. He parteth not with the way of sinners, but as the hare, he retaineth the foot of a dog or bear, and therefore he is unclean. You have spoken for aught I know the true gospel sense of those texts. And I will add another thing. Paul calleth some men, yea, those great talkers too, sounding brass and tinkling cymbals. That is, as he expounds them in another place, things without life giving sound. Things without life, that is, without the true faith and grace of the gospel. And consequently, things that shall never be placed in the kingdom of heaven among those that are the children of life. 
though their sound by their talk as it were the tongue or voice of an angel. Well, I was not so fond of his company at first, but I am sick of it now. What shall we do to be rid of him? Take my advice and do as I bid you, and you shall find that he will soon be sick of your company too, except God shall touch his heart and turn it. What would you have me do? Why, go to him, and enter into some serious discourse about the power of religion, and ask him plainly, when he has approved of it, for that he will, whether this thing be set up in his heart, house, or conversation. Then Faithful stepped forward again, and said to Talkative, Come, what cheer? How is it now? Oh, thank you. Well, I thought we should have had a great deal of talk by this time. Well, if you will, we will fall to it now. And since you left it with me to state the question, let it be this. How doth the saving grace of God discover itself when it is in the heart of man? Ah, I perceive then that our talk must be about the power of things. Well, it is a very good question, and I shall be willing to answer you. And take my answer in brief thus. First, where the grace of work of God is in the heart... It causeth there a great outcry against sin. Second, Nay, hold, let us consider of one at once. I think you should rather say it shows itself by inclining the soul to abhor its sin. Why, what difference is there between crying out against and abhorring of sin? Oh, a great deal. A man may cry out against sin of policy, but he cannot abhor it, but by virtue of a godly antipathy against it. I have heard many cry out against sin in the pulpit, who yet can abide it well enough in their heart, house, and conversation. Joseph's mistress cried out with a loud voice, as if she had been very holy, but she would willingly, notwithstanding that, have committed uncleanness with him. Some cry out against sin, even as the mother cries out against her child in her lap, when she calleth it slut and naughty girl, and then falls to hugging and kissing it. You lie at the catch, I perceive. No, not I. I am only for setting things right. But what is the second thing whereby you would prove a discovery of a work of grace in the heart? Uh, great knowledge of gospel mysteries. This sign should have been first. But first or last, it is also false. For knowledge, great knowledge, may be obtained in the mysteries of the gospel, and yet no work of grace in the soul. Yea, if a man have all knowledge, he may yet be nothing, and so consequently be no child of God. When Christ said, Do you know all these things? And the disciples had answered, Yes. He addeth, Blessed are ye if ye do them. He does not lay the blessing in the knowing of them, but in the doing of them. For there is a knowledge that is not attended with doing. He that knoweth his master's will and doeth it not... A man may know like an angel, and yet be no Christian. Therefore your sign of it is not true. Indeed, to know is a thing that pleaseth talkers and boasters, but to do is that which pleaseth God. Not that the heart can be good without knowledge, for without that the heart is not. There is therefore knowledge and knowledge. Knowledge that resteth in the bare speculation of things, and knowledge that is accompanied with the grace of faith and love, which puts a man upon doing even the will of God from the heart. The first of these will serve the talker, but without the other, the true Christian is not content. 
Give me understanding, and I shall keep thy law. Yea, I shall observe it with my whole heart. You lie at the catch again. This is not for edification. Well, if you please, propound another sign how this work of grace discovereth itself where it is. Not I, for I see we shall not agree. Well, if you will not, will you give me leave to do it? You may use your liberty. A work of grace in the soul discovereth itself either to him that hath it or to standers by. To him that hath it thus, it gives him conviction of sin, especially of the defilement of his nature and the sin of unbelief, for the sake of which he is sure to be damned if he findeth not mercy at God's hand by faith in Jesus Christ. This sight and sense of things worketh in him sorrow and shame for sin. He findeth, moreover, revealed in him the Savior of the world, and the absolute necessity of closing with him for life, at the which he findeth hungerings and thirsting after him, to which hungerings, etc., the promise is made. Now, according to the strength or weakness of his faith in his Savior, so is his joy and peace, so is his love to holiness, so are his desires to know him more, and also to serve him in this world. But though I say it discovereth itself thus unto him, yet it is but seldom that he is able to conclude that this is a work of grace. Because his corruptions now and his abused reason make his mind to misjudge in this matter. Therefore, in him that hath this work, there is required a very sound judgment before he can, with steadiness, conclude that this is a work of grace. To others it is thus discovered. 1 by an experimental confession of his faith in Christ. Two, by a life answerable to that confession, to wit, a life of holiness, heart holiness, family holiness, if he have a family, and by conversation holiness in the world, which in general teacheth him inwardly to abhor his sin, and himself for that in secret, to suppress it in his family, and to promote holiness in the world, not by talk only as a hypocrite or talkative person may do, but by a practical subjection in faith and love to the power of the word. And now, sir, as to this brief description of the work of grace, and also the discovery of it, if you have ought to object, object. If not, then give me leave to propound to you a second question. Oh, nay, my part is not now to object, but to hear. Let me therefore have your second question. It is this. Do you experience this first part of this description of it? And doth your life and conversation testify the same? Or standeth your religion in word or in tongue, and not in deed and truth? Pray, if you incline to answer me in this, say no more than you know the God above will say amen to, and also nothing but what your conscience can justify you in. For not he that commendeth himself is approved, but whom the Lord commendeth. Besides to say I am thus and thus when my conversation and all my neighbors tell me I lie, is great wickedness. Then Talkative at first began to blush, but recovering himself, thus he replied, You come now to experience, to conscience, and God, and to appeal to him for justification of what is spoken. 
This kind of discourse I did not expect, nor am I disposed to give an answer to such questions, because I count not myself bound thereto, unless you take upon you to be a catechizer, and, though you should do so, yet I may refuse to make you my judge. But, I pray, will you tell me why you ask me such questions? Because I saw you forward to talk, because I knew not that you had aught else but notion. Besides, to tell you all truth, I have heard of you, that you are a man whose religion lies in talk, and that your conversation gives this, your mouth, profession, the lie. They say you are a spot among Christians, and that religion fareth the worse for your ungodly conversation, that some already have stumbled at your wicked ways, and that more are in danger of being destroyed thereby. Your religion and an alehouse, and covetousness, and uncleanness, and swearing, and lying, and vain company-keeping, etc., will stand together. The proverb is true of you which is said of a whore, to wit, that she is ashamed to all women, so are you ashamed to all professors. Well, since you are ready to take up reports and to judge so rashly as you do, I cannot but conclude that you are some peevish or melancholy man, not fit to be discoursed with, and so, adieu. Then came up Christian, and said to his brother, I told you how it would happen. Your words and his lusts could not agree. He had rather leave your company than reform his life. But he is gone. As I said, let him go. The loss is no man's but his own. He has saved the trouble of going from him, for he continuing, as I suppose he will do, as he is, he would have been but a blot in our company. Besides, the apostle says, from such withdraw thyself. But I am glad we had this little discourse with him. It may happen that he will think of it again. However, I have dealt plainly with him, and so am clear of his blood if he perisheth. You did well to talk so plainly to him as you did. There is but little of this faithful dealing with men nowadays, and that makes religion to stink so in the nostrils of many, as it doth for... They are these talkative fools whose religion is only in word and are debauched and vain in their conversation, that, being so much admitted into the fellowship of the godly, do puzzle the world, blemish Christianity, and grieve the sincere. I wish that all men would deal with such as you have done. Then should they either be made more conformable to religion or to the company of saints that would be too hot for them. How talkative at first lifts up his plumes. How bravely doth he speak, how he presumes to drive down all before him. But so soon as faithful talks of hard work, like the moon, that's past the full, into the wane he goes. And so will all, he that hard work knows. Thus they went on talking of what they had seen by the way, and so made that way easy, which would otherwise no doubt have been tedious to them. For now they went through a wilderness. Now when they were almost quite out of this wilderness, Faithful chanced to cast his eye back and spied one coming after them, and he knew him. Oh, who comes yonder? Is my good friend Evangelist. I and my good friend too, for it was he that set me the way to the gate. Now was Evangelist come up unto them, and thus saluted them. Peace be with you, dearly beloved. And peace be to your helpers. 
Welcome, welcome, my good evangelist. The sight of thy countenance brings to my remembrance thy ancient kindness and unwearied laboring for my eternal good. And a thousand times welcome. Thy company, O sweet evangelist, how desirable it is to us poor pilgrims. How hath it fared with you, my friends, since the time of our last parting? What have you met with, and how have you behaved yourselves? Then Christian and Faithful told him of all the things that had happened to them in the way, and how with what difficulty they had arrived at that place. Right glad am I not that you have met with trials, but that you have been victors. And for that you have, notwithstanding many weaknesses, continued in the way to this very day. I say right glad am I of this thing, and that for mine own sake and yours. I have sowed, and you have reaped. And the day is coming when both he that sowed and they that reaped shall rejoice together. That is, if you hold out, for in due season ye shall reap, if ye faint not. The crown is before you, and it is an incorruptible one. So run that you may obtain it. Some there may be that set out for this crown, and after they have gone far for it, another comes in and takes it from them. Hold fast, therefore, that you have let no man take your crown. You are not yet out of the gunshot of the devil. You have not resisted unto blood, striving against sin. Let the kingdom be always before you, and believe steadfastly concerning things that are invisible. Let nothing that is on this side of the other world get within you. And above all, look well to your own hearts and to the lusts thereof, for they are deceitful above all things, and desperately wicked. Set your faces like a flint. You have all power in heaven and earth on your side. Then Christian thanked him for his exhortation, but told him withal, We would have you speak further to us for our help the rest of the way, and the rather for that we well know that you are a prophet and can tell us of things that might happen unto us, and also how we might resist and overcome them. To which request faithful also consented. So evangelist began as followeth. My sons, you have heard in the words of the truth of the gospel that you must, through many tribulations, enter into the kingdom of heaven. And again, that in every city bonds and afflictions abide in you. And therefore you cannot expect that you should go long on your pilgrimage without them in some sort or other. You have found something of the truth of these testimonies upon you already, and more will immediately follow. For now, as you see, you are almost out of this wilderness, and therefore you will soon come into a town that you will by and by see before you, and in that town you will be hardly beset with enemies. You will strain hard, but they will kill you, and be you sure that one or both of you must seal the testimony which you hold with blood. But be you faithful unto death, and the king will give you a crown of life. He that shall die there, although his death will be unnatural and his pain perhaps great, he will yet have the better of his fellow, not only because he will be arrived at the celestial city soonest, but because he will escape many miseries that the other will meet with in the rest of his journey. But when you are come to the town, and shall find fulfilled what I have here related, then remember your friend and quit yourselves like men, and commit the keeping of your souls to your God in well-doing, as unto a faithful creator. Then I saw in my dream that when they were got out of the wilderness, they 
presently saw a town before them, and the name of that town is Vanity. And at the town there is a fair kept called Vanity Fair. It is kept all the year long. It beareth the name Vanity Fair because the town where it is kept is lighter than vanity. And also because all that is there sold or that cometh thither is vanity. As is the saying of the wise, all that cometh is vanity. This fair is no new erected business, but a thing of ancient standing. I will show you the original of it. Almost five thousand years ago, there were pilgrims walking to the celestial city as these two honest persons are, and Beelzebub, Apollyon, and Legion, with their companions, perceiving by the path the pilgrims made that their way to the city lay through this town of vanity. They contrived here to set up a fair, a fair wherein should be sold all sorts of vanity, and that it should last all year long. Therefore, at this fair, all such merchandise is sold as houses, lands, trades, places, honors, performance, titles, countries, kingdoms, lusts, pleasures, and delights of all sorts as whores, bawds, Wives, husbands, children, masters, servants, lives, blood, bodies, souls, silver, gold, pearls, precious stones, and what not. And moreover, at this fair, there is at all times to be seen juggling, cheats, games, plays, fools, apes, knaves, and rogues, and that of every kind. Here are to be seen, too, and that for nothing, thefts, murders, adulteries, false swearers, and that of a blood-red color. As in other fairs of less moment, there are several rows and streets under their proper names, where such and such wares are vended. So here likewise you have the proper places, rows, streets, countries and kingdoms, where the wares of this fair are soonest to be found. Here is the Britain Road, the French Road, the Italian Road, the Spanish Road, the German Road, where several sorts of vanities are to be sold. But as in other fairs, some one commodity is the chief of all the fair, so the ware of Rome and her merchandise is greatly promoted in this fair. Only our English nation, with some others, have taken a dislike thereat. Now, as I said, the way to the celestial city lies just through this town where this lusty fair is kept. He that will go to the city and yet not go through this town must needs go out of the world. The prince of princes himself, when here, went through this town to his own country, and that upon a fair day too. Yea, and as I think, it was Beelzebub, the chief lord of this fair, that invited him to buy of its vanities. Yea, would have made him lord of the fair, would he but have done him reverence as he went through the town. Yea, because he was such a person of honor, Beelzebub had him from street to street and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a little time that he might, if possible, allure the blessed one to cheapen by some of his vanities. But he had no mind to the merchandise, 
and therefore left the town without laying out so much as one farthing upon these vanities. This fair, therefore, is an ancient thing of long standing and a very great fair. Now these pilgrims, as I said, must needs go through this fair. Well, so they did. But behold, even as they entered the fair, all the people in the fair were moved, and the town itself, as it were, were in a great hubbub about them, and that for several reasons. First, the pilgrims were clothed with such raiment as was diverse from the raiment of any that traded in that fair. The people, therefore, of the fair made a great gazing upon them. Some said they were fools, some they were bedlams, and some they are outlandish men. Secondly, as they wandered at their apparel, so they did likewise at their speech, for few could understand what they said. They naturally spoke the language of Canaan, but they that kept the fair were the men of this world, so that from one end of the fair to the other they seemed barbarians to each other. Thirdly, that which did not a little amuse the merchandisers was that these pilgrims set very light by all their wares. They cared not so much as to look upon them, and if they called upon them to buy, they would put their fingers in their ears and cry, Turn away mine eyes from beholding vanity. They looked upwards, signifying that their trade and traffic was in heaven. One chanced mockingly beholding the carriage of these men to say to them, What will ye buy? But they, looking gravely upon him, answered, We buy the truth. At that, there was an occasion taken to despise the men the more, some mocking, some taunting, some speaking reproachfully, and some calling upon others to smite them. At last things came to a hubbub and great stir in the fair, insomuch that all order was confounded. Now was word presently brought to the great one of the fair, who quickly came down and deputed some of his most trusty friends to take these men into examination, about whom the fair was almost overturned. So the men were brought to examination, and they that sat upon them asked them, Whence came you? Whither do you go? Why do you wear such unusual garb? We are pilgrims and strangers in the world. Who are going to their own country, the heavenly Jerusalem. We have given no occasion to the men of the town, nor yet to the merchandisers thus to abuse us. Let us be about our journey. We have answered honestly and clearly that we have but one desire, to buy the truth. But they that were appointed to examine them did not believe them to be any other than bedlams and mad or else such as came to put all things into confusion in the fair. Therefore they took them and beat them, and besmeared them with dirt, and then put them into the cage, that they might be made a spectacle to all the men of the fair. There, therefore, they lay for some time, and were made the objects of any man's sport, or malice, or revenge, the great one of the fair laughing still at all that befell them. But the men, being patient, and not rendering railing for railing, but contrarywise blessing, and giving good words for bad, and kindness for injuries done, some men in the fair were more observing and less prejudiced than the rest, and began to check and blame the baser sort for their continual abuses done by them to the men. 
They, therefore, in angry manner, let fly at them again, counting them as bad as the men in the cage, and telling them that they seemed confederates and should be made partakers of their misfortunes. The other replied that for aught they could see, the men were quiet and sober and intended nobody any harm, and that there were many that traded in their fare and were more worthy to be put into the cage, yea, and pillory too, than were the men that they had abused. Thus, after divers words had passed on both sides, the men behaving themselves all the while very wisely and soberly before them, they fell to some blows among themselves and did harm one to another. Then were these two poor men brought before their examiners again, and there charged as being guilty of the late hubbub that had been in the fair. So they beat them pitifully and hanged irons upon them and led them in chains up and down the fair as an example and terror to others, lest any should speak in their behalf or join themselves unto them. But Christian and faithful behaved themselves yet more wisely and received the ignominy and shame that was cast upon them with so much meekness and patience that it won to their side, though but few in comparison to the rest, several of the men in the fair. This put the other party yet into greater rage, insomuch that they concluded the death of these two men, wherefore they threatened that the cage nor iron should serve their turn, but that they should die for the abuses they had done and for deluding the men of the fair. Then were they remanded to the cage until further order should be taken with them. So they put them in and made their feet fast in the stocks. Here, therefore, they called again to mind what they had heard from their faithful friend Evangelist, and were more confirmed in their way and sufferings by what he told them would happen to them. They also now comforted each other, that whose lot it was to suffer, even he should have the best of it. Therefore, each man secretly wished that he might have that preferment. But committing themselves to the all-wise disposal of him that ruleth all things, with much content they abode in the condition in which they were, until they should be otherwise disposed of. Then a convenient time being appointed, they brought them forth to their trial, in order to their condemnation. When the time was come, they were brought before their enemies and arraigned. The judge's name was Lord Hategood. Their indictment was one and the same in substance, though somewhat varying in form. The contents whereof were this. You are enemies too, and disturbers of their trade. You have made commotions and divisions in the town, and have won a party to your own most dangerous opinions, in contempt of the law of our prince. I have only set myself against that which has set itself against him that is higher than the highest. As for disturbance, I am myself a man of peace. The parties that were won to us were won by beholding our truth and innocence, and they are only turned from the worse to the better. And as to the king you talk of, since he is Beelzebub, the enemy of our Lord, I defy him and all his angels. Then proclamation was made, that they that had aught to say for their lord the king against the prisoner at the bar should forthwith appear and give in their evidence. So there came in three witnesses, to wit, envy, superstition, and pickthank. Do you know the prisoner at the bar? 
What have you to say for your lord the king against him? Then stood forth envy, and said to this effect, My lord, I have known this man a long time, and will attest upon my oath before this honorable bench that he is... Hold! Give him his oath. Though they swear him. My lord, this man, notwithstanding his plausible name, is one of the vilest men in our country. He neither regardeth prince nor people, law nor custom, but doth all he can to possess all men with certain of his disloyal notions, which he in the general calls principles of faith and holiness. And, in particular, I heard him once myself affirm that Christianity and the customs of our town of vanity were diametrically opposite and could not be reconciled. By which saying, my lord, he doth at once not only condemn all our laudable doings, but us in the doing of them. Hast thou any more to say? My lord, I could say much more. Only I would not be tedious to the court. Yet, if need be, when the other gentlemen have given in their evidence, rather than anything shall be wanting that will dispatch him, I will enlarge my testimony against him. So he was bid stand by. Then they called superstition. Look upon the prisoner. What can you say for your lord the king against him? Then they swear him, so he began. My lord, I have no great acquaintance with this man, nor do I desire to have further knowledge of him. However, this I know, that he is a very pestilent fellow, from some discourse that the other day I had with him in this town. For then, talking with him, I heard him say that our religion was not, and such by which a man could by no means please God, which sayings of his, my lord, your lordship, very well know what necessarily thence will follow, to wit that we do still worship in vain are yet in our sins, and finally shall be damned. And this is that which I have to say. Then was Pickthank sworn, and bid say what he knew. Speak in behalf of their lord the king against the prisoner at the bar. My lord, and you gentlemen all, this fellow I have known of a long time, and have heard him speak things that ought not to be spoke, for he hath railed on our noble prince Beelzebub, and hath spoken contemptibly of his honorable friends, whose names are the Lord Old Man, the Lord Carnal Delight, the Lord Luxurious, the Lord Desire of Vain Glory, my old Lord Lechery, Sir Having Greedy, with all the rest of our nobility. And he hath said, moreover, that if all men were of his mind, if possible, there is not one of these noble men should have any longer a being in this town. Besides, he hath not been afraid to rail on you, my lord, who are now appointed to be his judge, call you an ungodly villain, with many other such like vilifying terms with which he hath bespattered most of the gentry of our town. When this pickthank had told his tale, the judge directed his speech to the prisoner at the bar, saying, Thou runagate, heretic, and traitor, hast thou heard what these honest gentlemen have witnessed against thee? May I speak a few words in my own defense? Sirrah, sirrah, thou deservest to live no longer, but to be slain immediately upon the place. Yet, that all men may see our gentleness toward thee, let us hear what thou vile runagate hast to say. One, I say then in answer to what Mr. Envy hath spoken, I never said aught but this, that what rule or laws or custom or people 
were flat against the word of God are diametrically opposite to Christianity. If I set a miss to this, convince me of my error, and I am ready here before you to make my recantation. Two, as to the second, to wit, Mr. Superstition and his charge against me, I said only this, that in the worship of God there is required a divine faith. But there can be no divine faith without a divine revelation of the will of God. Therefore, whatever is thrust into the worship of God that is not agreeable to divine revelation cannot be by human faith, which faith will not be profitable to eternal life. 3. As to what Mr. Pickthank hath said, I say, avoiding terms as that I am said to rail and the like, that the prince of his town, the rabblement, his attendants, by this gentleman named, are more fit for a being in hell than in this town and country. And so, the Lord have mercy upon me. Gentlemen of the jury, you see this man about whom so great an uproar hath been made in this town? You have also heard what these worthy gentlemen have witnessed against him. Also, you have heard his reply in confession. It lieth now in your breast to hang him or to save him, but yet I think meet to instruct you in our law. There was an act made in the days of Pharaoh the Great, servant to our prince, that lest those of a contrary religion should multiply and grow too strong for him, their males should be thrown into the river. There was also an act made in the days of Nebuchadnezzar the Great, another of his servants, that whoever would not fall down and worship his golden image should be thrown into a fiery furnace. There was also an act made in the days of Darius, that whoso, for some time, called upon any god but him, should be cast into the lion's den. Now the substance of these laws this rebel has broken, not only in thought, which is not to be borne, but also in word and deed, which must therefore needs be intolerable. For that of Pharaoh, his law was made upon a supposition to prevent mischief, no crime being yet apparent. But here is a crime apparent. For the second and third, you see he disputeth against our religion, and for the treason he hath confessed, he deserveth to die the death. Then went the jury out, whose names were Mr. Blindman, Mr. No Good, Mr. Malice, Mr. Lovelust, Mr. Liveloose, Mr. Heady, Mr. Highminded, Mr. Enmity, Mr. Liar, Mr. Cruelty, Mr. Hate Light, and Mr. Implacable, who every one gave in his private verdict against him among themselves and afterwards unanimously concluded to bring him in guilty before the judge. And first among themselves, Mr. Blindman, the foreman. I see clearly that this man is a heretic. Then said Mr. No Good, Away with such a fellow from the earth. Mr. Malice replied, Aye, for I hate the very looks of him. Then said Mr. Lovelust, I could never endure him. Mr. Liveloose interjected, Nor I, for he would always be condemning my way. Mr. Hetty exclaimed, Hang him! Hang him! Mr. High-Minded haughtily responded, A sorry scrub. Mr. Enmity, Mr. Liar, and Mr. Cruelty added their own insults to the howling mob of a jury. My heart riseth against him. He is a rogue! Hanging is too good for him. Mr. Hate Light and Mr. Implacable added their thoughts to the fray as the angry discourse concluded. Let us dispatch him out of the way. Might I have all the world given me? 
I could not be reconciled to him. Therefore, let us forthwith bring him in guilty of death. And so they did. Therefore he was presently condemned to be had from the place where he was to the place from whence he came, and there to be put to the most cruel death that could be invented. They therefore brought him out to do with him according to their law. And first they scourged him, and then buffeted him. Then they lanced his flesh with knives. After that they stoned him with stones, and pricked him with their swords. And last of all, they burned him to ashes at the stake. Thus came faithful to his end. Now I saw that there stood behind the multitude a chariot and a couple of horses waiting for faithful, who so soon as his adversaries had dispatched him was taken up into it and straightway was carried up through the clouds with a sound of trumpet the nearest way to the celestial gate. But as for Christian, he had some respite and was remanded back to prison. So he remained there for a space. But he that overrules all things, having the power of their rage in his own hand, so wrought it about that Christian for that time escaped them and went his way. And as he went, he sang, saying, Well, faithful, thou hast faithfully professed unto thy Lord with whom thou shalt be blessed. When faithless ones with all their vain delights are crying out under their hellish plights, sing, faithful, sing, and let thy name survive. For though they killed thee, thou art yet alive. Thank you for listening to today's episode. Your host has been Andrew Gomison, founder of Speaking for Him. For more information on today's show and to leave us comments and voicemails, visit speakingforhim.blogspot.com. You can find Andrew's ministry at speakingforhim.com. That's speaking, the number four, H-I-M. You can also interact with us at facebook.com slash speakingforhim and on Twitter at Speaking for Him. And when you look for us on iTunes and Stitcher, let us know what you think of the podcast by leaving a rating and review.